to episode four of uh, series two of Some Essex Lad and a Paralympian, uh, Salee Pearson, um, on the podcast um, this evening. Um, Lee, thank you for coming on so much. Um, in Staffordshire, how is it for you at the minute? How's the farm? The farm is a great place to be during these random times, to be honest. Um, I feel very lucky. I don't feel very lucky when I have to pay the mortgage for the farm, might I add, but um, during this year where we haven't really been doing comp- competitions until recently, we did some at the start of the year uh, and then obviously lockdown, etc. cetera. Uh, the weather was amazing. I got so many jobs done on the farm. The horses are going the best they've ever gone because I rode them when I wanted to ride them versus when like the rest of the sports people kind of when you've got to train, sometimes you don't want to train. Um, and then um, when they could, my kind of farm was the place to be for godchildren, nieces and nephews. So we were out playing on motorbikes, quad bikes, horses, uh, paddling pools and everything. It was just a, a really very relaxed summer for me. Um, and to be honest, people say, oh, well, how's it affected with um, Tokyo being delayed next year? But I'm uh, for powers, I'm campaigning a horse who's he's only nine years old and he's quite uh, sensitive to environments and, 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 and even that's done me a favour just to give me an extra year to get him more in the dressage arenas and hopefully some bigger championships and um, just give him more experience in, a, in an extra year. So it's worked out quite well then. COVID yeah, it sounds horrible. I feel horrible saying that because for some people, and, and I've got friends and family of that kind of lost, lost people or friends that their friends and family have been very ill. It's 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 a strange situation to say that. Yeah, I have enjoyed and relaxed and recovered really, and and with no guilt because as a sportsman, years gone by. If I've had a year maybe out, I felt a bit guilty seeing the, seeing my team going off to championships and wanting to be there and compete with them. Whereas actually this year there was no chance of doing that. So I just made the most of it as much as I could just to um, have that enforced rest really. What was your reaction when you kind of first heard of the news? Was it um, kind of real disappointment that you thought, well, you know, this yeah. is going to be another year or? Not for me. I felt sorry because within my sports, the horses have a very short range that fits into the four year cycle. So um, especially the Grand Prix able bodied horses, they may get to Grand Prix maybe at 10 years old, but they might retire at 16. So there's only one Olympics in them for that um, for that game. And then obviously there's a broad age range for us. So there's some older people that might have been aiming for the Olympics, but in another four years time, they may be maybe too old. Um, but for me, I still don't class myself as too old just yet. Uh, I think Anne Dunham, one of our power riders, she retired in her 60s. So I've got I've got another couple of years yet. Paris, LA, you could retire after going to Malibu if you, if you fancied it. That would be nice, yeah. Yeah, I think Shaw could misbehave in Malibu. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how's... So- um how's you know the journey been really from you know I want to go back all the way back to when you kind of grown up in Shettleton and kind of going back there to kind of where you are now because you are pretty one of the most decorated um Paralympic athletes this country has ever had and you probably heard that quite a few times um before as well um but how did it all start what inspired you to kind of get into um you know horse riding because you you know you started on a donkey called Sally you know you you kind of went from that and then you know you've still got the passion clearly for 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 all this I love horsepower with wheels as well as hooves to be honest and uh mum and dad were working class but they'd spent all their money uh one year to buy my nan's house from it when I was three years old and that came with 
I think four or five acres just attached to it. It was a semi-detached house. So um, I was lucky that I had a really good childhood. So I learned to drive a tractor at a very early age. Um, we had trike, like, so you have quad bikes and ATVs. But years ago, there was a the very dangerous trike. So there were like three-wheeled uh, uh, ATVs and they used to tip over with many people. Um, kind of had one of them and then, an, uh, then a quad bike ATV when they first came out and we're just just really lucky that we had that extra space and um, chickens and animals and dogs so it was a bit like the Waltons to be honest living in the Waltons <laughs> um so as well as Sally the donkey which I mean I, I I I loved equines and I wanted to ride and I think it was the cheesy statement of it kind of gave me the freedom a little bit because um my legs uh weren't made for running although I would still run around and play and at night time, you're playing Torch Wars, which is like kind of tick, but with torches and just a great time, really. And and then um, reality struck in of um, getting a job after after school. I had to fight to get into mainstream school. My parents did. And my mum said, uh, well, then my mum thought the council, they said no at first. And then eventually they said, well, he can go to an able-bodied school. So bear in mind, we're talking like nearly 40 years ago now. Um but you'd have to have a carer with him. And my mum was like, absolutely no way. He's strange. Like, quite patronising that you could have. Yeah, been. but at the same time, in my county, there wasn't another severely disabled person going to mainstream school, but very patronising. But also, it was unheard of. So they said, yeah, you can go with a carer. You can go, but with a carer. My mum went, no, no, he's strange enough. He's not having a middle-aged woman following him around school. He'll carry his own satchel or he'll make friends and they'll carry it for him. And then through the exams and etc i went on a youth training scheme and all through this i was just riding as a hobby i was quite rubbish uh, as a child on a pony i was petrified to be fair i used to get booked off most days my my pony uh, which was after the donkey knew that i was kind of rubbish and just took advantage of that um so horses especially when you're training for dressage they have about um i say about 501 evasions of not doing what you want them to do um, so they're very quick at um, working out your weaknesses. And this pony realized I was rubbish and frightened. So yeah, I got booked off every day. But then as I became a teenager, I acquired other horses and uh, started riding uh, competition horses for a lady. And she forced me to have confidence. Let's put it that way. She was very, very, very strict. Um, but I owe my horsemanship to her, Elsie um, Wilkinson, a lot of my initial horsemanship. Um, and then... Kind of got on a YTS scheme because nobody wanted to employ a severely disabled person, uh, let's say 30, 30 years ago. Yes, um, then, wasn't it, though? Say that again. Different times. Yeah, we, it's changed only, and, and that's the power of Paralympic sport as well as all the laws and policies that we have in this country. Um, and I, the YTS scheme was at the co-op, just in administration, just doing office work, and uh, and I absolutely hated it. Um, I, uh, I I am allergic to horses. That's not even me being joking. Antihistamines help when needed. Um, I've, I've heard that, but it, you know, you, you kind of struggle to believe it. Kind of, you know, I know. done the, the fact that he's like, having a laugh, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> I mean, how, how did that come about? I mean, I mean, when did you kind of first realise? Was that literally the first time you got in a horse you kind of had a reaction? No, it, was, it was always very mild and I always had mild asthma. Uh, and then it, I kind of realised more when I was in the stables. If the stables say in winter, all the doors are shut up to keep the horses a bit more snugly warm. 
Uh, but then there's more ammonia coming from the poos and wheeze, then that and my asthma would get a bit bad. And then it would have been sometime in my 20s, I had contact lenses. And then my eyes would go really bloodshot every morning. It doesn't matter how much you scrub your eyes, you're still going to have those tiny, tiny kind of remains of something horsey. Oh, wow. on. So my eyes would look like I was drunk every day, basically. I'd, had a real, I'd got a really bad hangover. Um, and, I was, and I was doing the office job and I absolutely hated it. I was there for six years and kind of in the sixth year, I became depressed as in went to the doctors, um, got some pills just to help with that. And I just just didn't really see my life doing paperwork. I, I, I still hate it to this day. And I'm a very much an outdoors active person if I'm not unconscious. Um, and, uh, and it was, a, it was a, a similar time. So you can do the sums. I'm 46 now. And I saw the Atlanta games, which was 1996. 1996. 1996. years ago. 1998, I contacted what was Riding for the Disabled was our national uh, federation then. It, since then, things have changed because Riding for the Disabled are phenomenal, but they're not really competition orientated. And I uh, rang RDA and I said, look, I've got a disability. It's arthrogryphosis multiplex congenitor and a lovely polite lady. I remember just saying, oh, yes, we'll write that down. And, and I said, I've, and I've seen the Paralympics. The say that again? Good luck in the spelling in that one for her at the time. I don't know how to spell that one. I can't say it if I've had a drink either. Um, and um, after a couple of months, nobody come out. So I rang them again and I said, oh, I'm, I'd like to kind of start competing and just don't know where to go and what to do. And she said, oh, yeah, we'll send someone out. So a gentleman called Doug Smith, who was a, a regional and national rider for the disabled man, came out. And I remember it to this day. He, I was at my parents and that's where I was based. I only had a field and uh, he got out of his car and he just literally looked me up and down. And he said, my God, you are disabled. And I was like, yeah, I kind of did say that on the phone. And he went, yeah, but nobody knew what arthrogryphosis multiplex congenitor was. So we just presumed you might have like a monkey finger or something just mildly wrong. Impressions there. Yeah. And it was like, so you ride, do you? I was like, yeah, I ride. Do you want to watch me ride? Yeah. So I just got a leg up on one of my horses. I galloped around the field. I jumped a log. And bear in mind, like, um, there was... At that stage, it was still riders, didn't have their own horses. They were being put on on RDA horses, very safe, very ploddy, very, very sedate. And there was me on uh, 17-2, ex-stallion called Blue Circle Boy, snorting, farting, and just generally being a plonker. And, and you know, on cartoons, when you see kind of uh, money going around the eyes of a cartoon character, yeah. Doug was just seeing medals because he'd never seen a disabled rider ride as as cowboy like because i knew nothing about dressage then um i actually thought it was probably one of them. after cricket golf football rugby maybe uh, i thought dressage was one of the most boring sports god ever invented it's just horses going around in circles looking pretty <laughs> um, but it's not that and i can explain more you about it you hit, you hit the ground running didn't you you kind of you know you yeah. had the world champs before going to sydney and Atlanta. And before i want to get onto that i want to quickly go because you were kind of famous as a kid as well with the margaret thatcher up the stairs <laughs> which you must have heard a thousand times already but i'm gonna say it again um so how how was that um did you kind of at that point you know recognize kind of that it did make in the end quite a few headlines when you have your career in the future it was just 
surreal. I was six years old, so I only have flashbacks of it. And I remember being in the bath the night before. I didn't know anything about it. I was in the bath one night and my mum came in with a brown velvet suit. And I was like, oh, what's that? And she was like, we're going to London tomorrow. And I still didn't know about the award. And I was far more excited about going in a black cab in London in a taxi than I was meeting the prime minister. Um, and um, once again, just flashbacks of it. And as you, you probably read, there's a story where there was 12 children that received a woman's own Children of Courage Award every year. Unfortunately, now they've now stopped. But a few up to a few years ago, I went back as a kind of celebrity, kind of, um, even though I was an award winner in 1980. And um, yeah, Margaret, we got to the bottom of the stairs in, in number 10 down the street. My dad was carrying me. I'm like carrying a crab, basically, with my arms and my legs and my leg splints and the crutches and everything. And Margaret Thatcher, I don't know why, out of the 12 children, just came over to my dad and said, oh, I'll carry Lee upstairs. And my dad went, oh, no, he's really awkward to carry. It's not very easy. And she just looked at my dad and she went, I will carry Lee upstairs. <laughs> and, you couldn't refuse that then if she reacted like that, you think? Uh, well, yeah, my dad's quite a dominant, strong character, but I think the Iron Lady kind of put him in his place very, very briefly. <laughs> and uh, I just remember, because on the wall, as you go up the stairs, is all the previous prime ministers that brought and she was just showing me all of them. And then there was an amazing uh, buffet at the top. And we all had a Christmas present each as well, which for me was a was a rather large uh, fire engine, basically. And, did, you, did you speak to Margaret Thatcher? Did you, did you have a chat with her, I guess, being sick? It... I must have done it if I was being carried by her, but I can't remember it, to be honest. Yeah, I've got no in internal information to tell you there, sorry. <laughs> so did that get picked up? Um, were they kind of, did you, you, did you kind of go back to the town famous because you'd been picked up by Margaret Thatcher or were those headlines kind of generated because you'd done what you'd done in terms of your career? Um, well, I hadn't, as in at the time, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, well, there was no kind of career. I know I was six years old, but um, I just think everybody was aware of what happened. I don't know how much it would have reached local newspapers. And I was just more probably dreading going to school the next day, to be honest. Um, but um, it just adds to the surrealness of my life, uh, what happened kind of since, really. Uh, I'm dead glad I did the office job when I, uh, because... I think if I hadn't had that grounding of reality of how boring it and mentally kind of killing it is to go to an office and do paperwork for six years, if I'd gone straight from kind of school to being a Paralympian, I wouldn't have uh, any um, concept or sympathy for people that actually managed to do that. Before talking about Atlanta and how you inspired there, and then you obviously going to Sydney and, and uh, you know winning three three golds in Sydney, um, I wanted to have a quick, um, you know, chat about how you kind of grew up with the disability. Um, mm. How was that kind of adapting to to life as well? With my disability, although some people would argue that there's no obviously uh, brain issues, there's no psychological issues. It is just a physical thing. So, and a lot of people with my disability are just really determined. But I suppose that goes. Uh, the same goes for many people just with physical disabilities do you know what I mean or even psychological disabilities I suppose but so for me I lived in the countryside and I didn't really know any other disabled person so I wasn't naive that I didn't wasn't aware of my disability but all my mates were able bodies so they were climbing trees so somehow we'd manage to throw a rope over a branch and I would be climbing trees being pulled up by them do you know what I mean and I just 
just played in the countryside and with my mates our house seemed to be for both my older brother's friends and my friends seemed to be the house we lived about a mile out of the local village and 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 like my house now is just open doors if you visited this evening you'd just be so there's the kettle there's the fridge make yourself a drink make yourself at home there's no airs and graces where everybody just arrives at my house and it was the same when I was growing up um and um so I I was out playing a lot and not really taking my disability into consideration and then silly things like when you can drive a quad bike at eight years old but you're kind of friends parents can't even drive one you are really the place to be um with your mates hanging off the back and when they're getting on your quad bike revving like mad doing a wheelie and getting them to flip over and be on the back in the field you know i mean we were kind of just the naughty place to be um so just i didn't have much of a concept but the but the the negative of that is then i became a bit phobic of other people with disabilities so because i I was the person, if there's a wheelchair rolling towards me on the pavement, I'd probably cross the road and end up in Ann Summers by accident because I had no intention of going in Ann Summers, just wanted to dodge the wheelchair. Do you know what I mean? So really? when I, um, it, was that, it was that kind of literal about it. Yeah, it wasn't just ignorance. It was like, pho- like phobic, really. Um, so when I got in touch with RDA and they Doug came out and uh, I, they um, then organized some training. And then I quite quickly, I think world-class performance, the lottery funding had just come into the British Equestrian Federation around that time. <clears throat> so I was just railroaded to the top squad. And I remember going to top squad thinking like I went on my first day training and I'd never ever since fighting, my parents fighting to get me into a mainstream school, which I, I think I was about nine years old, had been in a room with so many disabled people, even though there was probably only seven or eight. But um, so when I do do like, I go around the world doing speeches for company, I say like, I understand about being ignorant to disability because I was worse than that. I was like phobic really. So I've come and the Paralympic, um, my Paralympic journey has made me a better person so um that's because you were kind of surrounded by other people who you know were disabled and you know that inclusivity at mm. a certain level especially in sports kind of you know sport brought everyone together yeah i think uh, anybody that's narrow-minded with anything skin color disability sexuality if you have if you don't have the opportunity to be, be around those people then you can you can become quite anti or it's quite easy to be bullyish about them and quite ignorant and arrogant about them really so I that was the only thing that had happened to me but I'm a person people so literally I I was turned around quite quickly that in years to come when I had a terrible civil uh, partnership my best mate was Ricky Balshaw not best mate my best man is my best mate who was Ricky Balshaw who um, is the best and worst best man you could ever have because he's more naughty than I am um so yeah the power of paralympic sport turned my um stupidity phobic ignorance around and uh, and that's why i'm aware of the power of paralympic sport for the rest of the world really in countries where openly lgbt as well and and also countries where disability isn't accepted or um equal to able-bodied counterparts really just quickly on that before going to um before i want to talk about sydney um LGBT how, uh, you know how's the journey been with that and you know um how's that kind of related to your career in sports and kind of your personal life as well um 
I've never been really been one to campaign about disability, disability sports, or sexuality, LGBT. Um, I'm just, I just, a, I'm just a do kind of person, not a, not a talking. Even though we're here sat talking about things, I'm more of a doer than a chewer. So I never kind of um, announced my sexuality uh, to the media, but at the same time. I do a sport of dressage, which is probably a little bit like hairdressing, as in like there's quite a few gay men within the world of dressage. So I suppose it was a given. In fact, Ricky Balshaw set up a club years ago when he used to compete called Smid and they had, he had T-shirts made. He only had four T-shirts made and it was called Smid stood for straight men in dressage, but there was only four of them at the time. <laughs> um, so I think um, I've never been embarrassed about my disability. I was very... I had a very traumatic coming out because I, I didn't want to be gay bisexual man. I didn't I didn't I didn't want to be any more different than I already was. So um, uh, that's probably a too long a story to discuss now. But I hated myself more than anybody else could hate me. So once I'd got over that, um, the 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 strength of getting over that, and it was very 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 hard. Uh, then gave me the strength to go actually I don't really care about what anybody else thinks because I couldn't have gone to a deeper place mm. and yeah. criticized myself and hated myself more than anybody else could hate me so um, that just gives you a strength of uh, that nobody else can really affect you and don't get me wrong years ago you used to read odd things on online that weren't great um, I just think well it, it's really your issue it's, it's the same as reading something great about not so great about my disability do you know what I mean I can't I can't change either of them so I'm not going to apologize for them and, and I think the media were quite quite good with that I just think it was novel to have one of the top British Paralympians that was out more than I was a gay dressage rider or a bisexual dressage rider it, in the sport nobody blinks an eyelid so it certainly was not <clears throat> anything unusual within the sport but i just think it was unusual perhaps or easy for the media to go oh we've got a gay lesbian. how was going out to uh, australia as a first you know Par paralympics other side of the world completely must have been surreal well, I went over in 1999, actually, to do an international. And I think that was the managers at the time. Uh, and I get to get an idea how I would cope with the travel along with another rider and do a little bit of a recce. Um, so I certainly did a lot of traveling over those two years. Um, my memory is awful, so I may not be able to answer all your questions. But along with other highlights, like becoming the flag bearer in, in Rio, uh, being an MBE at first, then then being knighted, um, and people ask me like what is your favorite gold medal and I was like the first one um I never ever dreamed even though I went to the world championships in 99 and and I did triple gold at the worlds the Paralympics even then was on another level um totally life-changing nobody goes to Olympics or Paralympics realistically with the with the well I didn't go with the knowledge or expectation to win a medal never mind uh three gold medals so it was just life-changing it was just um it's just a fairy tale really and to go from my birth which we haven't talked about but my birth was horrific literally I was left in a broom cupboard kind of to die really for three days 
to go from it is so kind of to go from that to um winning a gold medal was just numbing just i remember being numb for months really i was about to say you know the, the perspective between your birth and and you know the situation where you do when your first Paralympic gold medal or you know athletes always say you know world championships European champs you know winning golds in those is one thing but Paralympics that's what it's all about and you know that's what you can have judged on at the end of your career so for you and I'll just quickly go through the stats you know 11, 11 Paralympic golds 14 medals in total 14 world championship golds 14 in total so you know 14 out of 14 there you know, and then you got, you know, five European golds, nine medals in total there, 37 medals, 30 of which have been gold. I mean, it, it's some career overall. And to go from... Yeah, I didn't know that. You really have done your homework because I think Wikipedia may say something different and everyone says, oh, you've won Paralympic and then a few worlds and a few Europeans. So you really... I'm very yeah, impressed. I like to think so. You know, this is the, the journalist. Yeah. Um, to go from yeah. that, you know, the birth situation to kind of where you are, now and Sydney obviously being the first it, it, it must be surreal and crazy I still wake up though and I only said that yesterday to somebody that said something um about the achievements and, and medals and, and and fostering and I said I still wake up and I think I should, really should get a proper job I really should do something with my life so I don't see and I'm not just saying that to be humorous I I, I do wake up and think I really should grow up and I really should get to do something with my life but then when you when I haven't heard those numbers that you've just said for for, for years really because I say everybody normally gets them wrong anyway and I just nod my head and go yeah that's that's that, that's okay that's about it um so yeah when you read them num when you hear the numbers like that when you read them out yeah it's it's not even mad it's, it's like you're talking about somebody else really because in every in every Paralympic Games you won a gold medal and I know with London there was a bit of a I think you're voted down by a British judge there and there was a bit of, you know, what would happen. And also in Rio, which has never really been reported on. So here's a, a new bit of gossip. I wasn't put on the team, so I could only win two medals. And there was a massive frustration there as well because my horse and the results with that horse placed us in second place throughout the year, really, out of the five people. I think it was five people who went to Rio or four, maybe. can't really remember how many athletes we had then. Um and that was very frustrating to not be placed on the team. And the selectors don't have, didn't, and don't, didn't, and don't have to come up with a reason of a who's selected to go to a championships. But then, if you've got five riders, which I think it was then, and four of them are on the team to represent Great Britain, um, then it's also extremely frustrating. Um, and when you, you're not uh, part of that team, so you can't win another 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 gold medal at, at that particular game. So. Yeah, like any politics with sport, sometimes that's more frustrating than, than well, politics and judging. Uh, judging and dressage is uh, a unique art, let's put it that way, with sometimes what the judges kind of, uh, the scores that they give, which is probably similar to like gymnastics on the floor in any perceptive uh, sport, really. Uh, we joke in dressage that we yeah, wish we could. The over it isn't there kind of to, to it. To an extent, with the scoring, there's not a def definitive, you know, 100 yeah. meters, 200 meters, you got that time, whereas yeah. there is subjectivity around it. Yeah. So that's one of the most frustrating things. And uh, and it just takes me back to my training. I love training horses. I, 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 I can't really describe the feeling that you have when your horse just gives you something, even at home, not, not in an Olympic arena. And that's what's dragged me through. 
uh, the tough times mentally, but also physically. I've broken most bones in my body over the years. Um, well, you got back in 2011, I think it was. Yeah. Around June 2011. And obviously before London 2012, was there any kind of doubt in your mind that you'd miss potentially a home Olympics or sorry, home Paralympics? No, not at all, because that particular accident, um, I didn't know I'd broken my back. I, I had a horrific accident and an ambulance was called. Uh, I hit the deck basically flat on my back onto a damp uh, surface. So imagine the beach, basically. Um, it, the sand is quite hard if you hit it from a, a great height. And I did flat on my back. So I was actually winded for six hours, uh, literally like, <gasps> could not get any air or breath. And like winded anyway is bad, but winded for six hours. Went to accident emergency, had x-rays. I think I had one of the mainstream televisions doing a document. Well, I did have, I can't remember which one, uh, Channel 1 or Channel 4. Um, and uh, they were doing a documentary uh, with me. And anyway, they weren't there at A&E. They reenacted a little bit of uh, filming of me falling well, that's, off. That's, that's a different programme, that, if they're going to A&E. Yeah, exactly. And uh, they, they took x-rays and said, no, you've just bruised and battered, go home, rest for a few days, and kind of get going again slowly. So I did that. Uh, for a few days. I remember lying in bed. I was so much in pain. I couldn't even get in the bath. So I just lay in bed with still arena sand in the bed with me because I was just literally, my clothes were cut off and everything for the, so it was just sand everywhere. And it was horrible. Anyway, I recovered around the house. A few days later, I was up the, the stable yard. And a few days later, I was riding again because I'd got clients' horses that I had to exercise. And I day one of a very sharp client's horse, as in naughty, um, I managed uh about 15 minutes and my eyes were streaming with pain. And then I rode the next day and I managed half an hour. I was like, yeah, I'm recovering. It's fine. I rode the next day, I managed 10 minutes and I got off and I ran the world-class performance, my managers. And I said, I'm just, something's really wrong. Can I have a, a scan please? And they said, yeah, no problem at all. And then I did have the, photo uh, the film crew with me. I remember that. And I went down to um, Leamington Spa privately to a private scan. And I sat in, these, the, the doctor's gentleman, the professor's uh, office, and he showed me the screen and he said, do you see your vertebra on the, on the screen? I was like, yeah. he said, do you see the four white vertebra? Uh, I said, yeah. He said, you've broken your back in four places. So what was the reaction initially from you? That was it. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, can I feel my legs? Can I feel my arms? Am I paralyzed? <laughs> but I'd already been going for, um, I think at that stage, for two weeks. And I think the saving grace in one way was the way I hang off my crutches. So obviously armpit crutches aren't very, aren't very uh, u much used anymore because they can damage the nerve under your armpits. So that's why lots of people that break their legs have the um, elbow crutches. And, uh, and I, but I think for me, hanging from my crutches, even though my legs are bent, I think it just hang, hung my torso. Every time I was walking, I wasn't walking like you would walk where you're putting pressure. I was when I was riding, but I wasn't putting pressure on my spine. So I think luckily being on crutches, I think stabilized my spine a little bit. And um, so in and some I, weird way, it actually worked out. Yeah. In that, in that sense. And I think I had another 12 weeks off resting and not riding and I was back in the saddle again so there was no way that I was not going to aim for uh, London 2012. So how was London? How did it compare to kind of Sydney, Athens and then Beijing? You know four very different kind of locations and you know experiences like you, you, you know you're gonna think. Mm. Well it wasn't it wasn't just that it wasn't just phenomenal because it was the home games it was phenomenal because it was the first four-year cycle up to London where the media 
up to, up to all the, the three games that you've just mentioned, um, Sydney, Athens and Beijing, it was Olympics, 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 Olympics. Oh, we've got Paralympics now. And then from, from Beijing to London, um, the British media just decided, no, we're not going to just do Olympics. It is Olympics and Paralympics. So there was never a re really a report, unless it was specific, that, that we weren't mentioned. And then... Um, Obviously, mainstream media wanted to be part of it because it was exciting and interesting. So we were part of documentaries. We were part of adverts. I was um, sponsored by BT for four years up to there. Did, did loads of things for different companies. And, and I think the worth, the media worth, I think, and the association with Paralympics and Paralympic athletes just became a brand, really, because of the media, because the media... It was those, it wasn't the other way. It wasn't we got sponsorship and then we got media. It was the media said, this, these guys are amazing. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about every single Paralympian or disabled athlete are amazing. And not only do, is it top sport, and people said that to me, she said, like, in London, we weren't seeing Olympians and Paralympians. We were seeing British athletes and we were cheering behind them, whether it was Olympics or Paralympics. And... And I think then, yeah, once the media appreciated what we did and realised that we were saleable and we could sell tickets. In fact, the Paralympic Village in London, I think, sold more tickets on... I, that's what I heard at the time, yeah. Yeah, because it was an Olympic day. And you know, we, we live so close to Stratford, so we got tickets to go and see, you know, uh, the relays for the athletics for the Olympics. And then we went to go and see blind football. I think Iran, Iran beat Argentina 8-1. And if that's not going to happen because when you've got Messi playing in, in, in real football, but obviously in blind football, that was the case. And then we ended up as a family, incredibly, this is a full circle moment, seeing you at Greenwich Park. <laughs> you were stalking now with Rain Ponchos. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking this is, this is it's part of the whole journey for the Paralympics and I think you know with the last leg and the media what Channel 4 did was you know yeah. amazing and what was your kind of thoughts of, of what Channel 4 did and kind of their coverage because that was kind of a legacy kind of London was kind of you know it was the benchmark of what other Paralympics in the future could set. Paralympics has, has changed the world for the better but Channel 4 enabled that to happen uh, really kind of up to London 2020. I think I've been banned from the last leg for being too cheeky, which is weird how cheeky they can be, but um, apparently they have an innuendo limit and I kind of uh, um, went beyond the innuendo limit. What, what was that? <laughs> I don't know, it was one around London 2012, so I have been invited back since. Rio how was that journey because I guess you know kind of you're in kind of you know a situation now where obviously you're going to Sydney mm. you're winning your first few medals and then by London you're probably one of the most recognizable pretty Paralympic athletes along with Ellie Simmons along with David Weir kind of in the village did you get to kind of see people come up to you and say have you got any advice about this yeah 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 uh, and and I think all of the, the the known athletes, the top athletes, are willing to give as much advice as as, as possible. Uh, to be honest, especially um, 
around living in the Paralympic Village because that is one of the most eye-opening, surreal experiences. Four and a half thousand disabled people in one area. You've never, no one's ever been in that environment. Free McDonald's, you've never had that. Um, so just kind of, and free transport and free food and, um, but also the, yeah, just the, 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 the size of the Paralympic village is just phenomenal. Like the food hall, you literally, sometimes you can't see the other end of the food hall. It is that long, full of uh, every type of cuisine around the world. And and, and, he, and like, you verbalize this now, I'm talking to you about it. And you, yeah, that's acceptable. Well, actually when you, you roll in there or you swing in there and it's like, wow. And you've only given yourself half an hour to eat, but that would only, you'd only be able to look about a quarter of the cuisines. And then what do you eat? And it's all free. and getting too much because you just the eyes are bigger than your belly and then remembering oh no I'm there to compete so I shouldn't leave with a dad bod really so what was the best what was the best cuisine that you had then what was McDonald's. the <laughs> McDonald's nice happy <laughs> McDonald's so what what would you say like it's a pretty bit of a tough question this but what do you say is the single kind of event um or kind of moment that you that you kind of look back on so far and you think yeah I want to kind of relive that moment kind of again when you've been competing I think it was probably my freestyle to music in Athens um, because although it was only a walk trot test, which is very basic dressage really, but that's the grade, that's the level that I'm in due to my disability. I compete to an advanced level uh, against able-bodied riders. And although it was a walk trot test, that horse, Blue Circle Boy, was quite quirky, uh, uh, quite opinionated. He could just stop way through a dressage arena and go I'm not doing any more he could even not refuse to go into the dressage arena um and that test was just near on perfect for I think he nearly got eight, 90 percent um and I remember one judge giving him nine 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 nines for all the movements and then they have um selection of scores at the end for like movement accuracy and things like that and they got full tens for that rider's influence etc and I think that that test was I'd never done a perfect test ever really and, and that and certainly not with that that horse um bless him and there that that test was just the right test at the right time um which is very very rare with horses really the thing is with you know and I've, we've had you know we had Sophie Camlish on um in the last episode you know she's a 100 meter runner and you know she's got to go from a to b in in 12 13 seconds then you get team events then you can rely on some other people in the team but then obviously with you you've got the relationship with the horse um i think it's an amazing kind of relationship how how that works um is is winning the gold could you have kind of be sort of fairly good but if the horse has an off day does that cost you potentially even a medal? Oh God, yeah, yeah, definitely. Or even a placing. Yeah. The horse and the planning. So like, um, without getting too political, I received the same amount of funding as an A-level athlete in any other sport. So I get the same funding as a swimmer. I get the same funding as a table tennis player. Um, but I have to run a farm with a mortgage because the option is having horses at livery, which actually two horses at livery, three horses at livery, would would be the same amount as my mortgage basically and i have eight eight horses at the moment um and breezer that i'm campaigning for tokyo is a homebred um so i he's nine years old so i bred i i daddy met daddy horse met mummy horse 10 years ago 
So I was planning, I was planning him to be here 10 years ago. And that's 10 years of care, 10 years of feed, 10 years of bedding. I do have some sponsorship towards that. 10 years of vets bills, 10 years of paying the grooms to be here every day to care for the horses um, and feed the horses and get me on the horses. Um, and then currently I have four competition horses and uh, three youngsters and a broodmare, uh, the youngsters for the future again. So wow. the, the pl- um, never mind the partnership that you've just discussed, the, 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 ta- the time, because I knew where power, power dressage has changed like unbelievable amount. Um, I have clients coming, Paralympic clients coming with budgets of £100,000 to buy a horse. Um, that would never have happened 20 years ago. Oh my God, that wouldn't have happened eight years ago. I really, yeah. Was that because of London, would you say, or was that just... Yeah, because, uh, because of guys like myself and Natasha Baker and Sophie Wells, Sophie Christensen, all of the riders that have been out there and then made, made other disabled riders, of which there was many, go, I want, I want a piece of that cake. I want to get there and be there. So our structure is, is massive now. Um, I mean, there's three squads on the world-class performance and then the British Equestrian Federation have numerous squads below us. So it, the, then, so you, other athletes are chasing your tail. Um, so then you have to get better horsepower, more train, better training, and, and, and it's developed beyond recognition. So I knew even, as say, uh, in Breeze's case, 10 years ago that I would not be able to afford the horsepower that's required. And the lottery fund, it won't buy horses, for good and bad reasons, really. They'll support with training and to a degree facilities, but um, it's they would not buy horses. So the horse power is down to the athletes, um, total own expense. So I knew my ability as a rider, but I also knew that my checkbooks weren't very big. So I bought a quality brood mare about 12, 13 years ago. And then I, and I bred three top horses uh, from her. Um, and then like, yeah, the partnership that you build up, you, 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 you back them, you start riding them when they're three years old, but you can't compete them in able-bodied classes until uh, they're four years old. You can't compete, compete them internationally till they're six years old. And, and realistically, the selectors would never uh, take a six-year-old to a Paralympic Games. So realistically, they're going to be kind of eight to um, 16 years old, really. So you have to think potentially a decade in advance. Yeah. A lot of the time, which yeah. is crazy. because yeah. you- And you can't do that with one horse because horses have a habit of going in the field or in the stable and injuring themselves. So... Like I, I can't just I, I I can't just go and sell my body, sell sell everything I have and buy one great horse because I'll probably have a very big vet's bill the next day and be <laughs> horseless. Um, so uh, it isn't just about my ability in the saddle; it's about my um, ability as a businessman, really, as well, um, and and trying to make best decisions. Because my horses come from the angle of being as natural as possible. They've been out in the field 24-7 up until the last few weeks, uh, really, where it's gone a bit bit cold, a bit rainy. Some people would never do that. They would wrap them up in cotton wool and they'd be staled more often. So I just make a judgment call because they're stronger, they're happier, they're more natural out, out in the fields. Don't get me wrong, they come in the stables for all competitions and training and et cetera. But, um, being free and out there is... It, it's juggling, literally, life um, up to that major championship. So sometimes, even though it's life-changing to go down that centre line and plan to win a, a medal or a gold medal or get placed, um, 
sometimes getting to the centre line is kind of like, whew, we made it. Have we you did it. Business acumen, like even when you were younger, did you kind of learn it kind of growing up in a farm or because it just come with the experience of getting older and kind of knowing, you know, what learn to what, do. sorry. That business acumen, you know. Come- uh, no, no, I I'm not an intelligent person at all. As you, you picked up earlier, I hate paperwork, I hate learning and I hate training. Um going through I became a foster carer this year and going through the foster training for me it, it was done online a lot of it and I and even when you get approved you still have to do a lot a lot more training and I absolutely hate it but it was very interesting through the foster training because you have a, a, a an assessing social worker who literally says at the start of the process I will know more about your life than you do by time I've interviewed you for four months basically right she really did uh, and and she was aware that I hated paperwork and I hated training. I'm not easy to train even in the dressage arena. The squad trainers have to tread very carefully sometimes. And I'm not being a diva. I just don't absorb it very easily. But this foster assessing social worker hit it on the head. She said, you're just intuitive, aren't you, with people? And I said, "You've you, how have you worked that out? She said, well, I have been assessing you for four months. And, and, uh, and I said, yeah, but that's exactly what I'm like with the horses. You could give me a book. You could give me the best book in, on dressage or the best DVD or the best YouTube link. But actually, I probably wouldn't read it and wouldn't watch it because me being on the horse in the field is where I've um, earned my stripes to produce horses and win medals. And I guess, you know, kind of recently as well you know it's not just about the horses it's about kind of the reputation from you know being knighted in 2017 and being the flag bearer at the opening ceremony as well in Rio yeah. again I always I'm using the word crazy and the words crazy and surreal uh, consistently throughout this but how was that experience um for, for, for both um so for the flag bearer um I was just unbelievably um, flattered and a little bit shocked that 363 athletes had a majority vote for me to to represent them. Um, that's that uh, that is up there with the knighthood, and it's up there with the first gold medal. It's up there with the multi gold medals. It's up there with the Margaret Thatcher incident. Um, it, it, it is one of those massive things because how many Paralympic opening ceremony flag bearers has there been? Um, you can do the homework on. <laughs> well, I'll try to anyway. Yeah, on the, I'll, I'll try to. And we've, we've received awards as Paralympians, BBC Sport Awards, and then the regional awards. There's some that's from from the BBC. There's some there's some awards at the bottom there on on that. Uh, uh, stand there just from the local BBC it was about 2004 I think you must get to a certain age and they stop nominating you or <laughs> success but um, but this one was voted by my fellow athletes so yeah that that is up where there with all the other surreal things that we talked about today and I was very even passionate and when it's with the athletes is that kind of even more satisfying when it's yeah. your fellow kind of you know your fellow sports mm-hmm. people that they actually nominate you for that. 260 odd phenomenal, inspiring people. And they voted you. And Great Britain is a very well-known, very successful Paralympic team. Um, and um, and to represent, yeah, Paralympics GB. 
I was just dreading dropping the flag or falling off the mobility scooter, to be fair. being nice is what was the journey around that because i know you know i think you said i think i've read a quote earlier that you know you said being knighted isn't just kind of for me it's almost for the paralympics sports and the oh, everything movement overall and the recognition for me yeah. is part of that entire movement overall yeah um it was bittersweet because years years before i think around beijing time i had an interview with a very well-known newspaper uh, of which I will not mention. It was I was driving. It was eleven o'clock at night time. I pulled over. I didn't know it was them uh, until they said, uh, and they said, "Can we do a quick interview on the phone?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And they were like, "It was one of the years." And he said, "Like, you know, I think it was probably after Beijing." And they said, "Oh, you, we've expe expected you to be honoured because there's other Olympians that have got nowhere near amount of gold medals that you've got, and they're going to be knights and dames." And uh, and I was like, "Yeah, well, that's kind of the way it is." And that's the discrepancy between uh, the, how this country perceives a Paralympic gold medal against an Olympic gold medal. And that was my words. And then, and it was a female and she said at the end, she said, in the office, we're really peed off. We're really peed off that you haven't been knighted. Are you? And I was like, well, yeah, when you word it like that, I am, a, I suppose I am a bit peed off, but it's the way life is at the moment. And this newspaper wrote the next day, Lee Pearson is peed off with not being knighted and then that gave me an unbelievable amount of hatred online how dare this bloke like so, um, yeah, so a leading question obviously creates the quote and then the quote goes into the paper and then yeah yeah and uh online i got hated i got I'd had had haters at london i had a i had a death threat email in london uh whilst in the paralympic village email came through and it was in the hands of the police um <laughs> Yeah, so from Beijing to London, there was, uh, of course, there was people that you think you'd inspired and people that like you, but because of that newspaper, there was a lot of um, kind of uh, not so much, not, 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 there wasn't great reads on the internet sometimes about my personality. So kind of when it happened, it was, yeah, surreal. It was amazing. I, I couldn't, couldn't quite believe, I couldn't quite believe it. Um, no, but I didn't, other than Sir Philip Craven, I didn't, I didn't know any other knight. Uh, and I thought, oh, there must be loads in the questioners. And of course, questioners are very posh. And obviously there's the odd friend with the royal family and things like that. And I looked for a question and there was, there was no other knight within a questioners. Living, like, up the polo, living up to the uh, polo stereotype there of uh, <laughs> a few years gone by. Uh, exactly. But no, I was the only knight within a questionism. Um there was, I think, Sir Mark Todd was an event, but he was Australian, so he, his knight is slightly different. I can't remember if he was knighted before me or after me, but um, yeah, it was. Say it, 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 that is very surreal. I've probably only this year stopped going red and getting embarrassed when someone calls me Sir Lee. Um, and psychologically, it's very weird because if you're a man, usually current times are a bit strange usually you're going to be a mister most of your life. Whereas if you're a miss, you might become a missus. So you plan that your title, yeah, yeah. I think perhaps as a, as a lady, as a woman, uh, a female, actually might change. But as a bloke, you never, ever, ever have a concept, generally, that your title's going to change because the MB that I had doesn't change you from a mister. The OB and the CB that I had don't change mister. So I didn't plan for it to affect 
me psychologically as much as it did. Um, I really. like it affected you quite a bit then, kind of. Yeah, yeah. really embarrassed about people calling me silly. Um, and it just didn't come natural. I'd not planned for my title to change at all. Well, I'm not going to lie, you know, when, when you see kind of, you know, you know, when I kind of obviously kind of got in touch with the first time, I'm thinking, well, what, what, what do I say? Is there a formality around this? You know, am I not going to get, you know, to have a chance to speak to you if I don't put the sir in front of the lead? But is that, is that being a bit too, but I guess that's, that they're the kind of things which, you know, when you speak to people who have been knighted, it kind of, for the for the commoner like me kind of it kind of goes through your head a bit. Well, I'm a commoner I'm a commoner I've spent the majority of my life as a mister so the way I I, I get it I understand I the way I deal with it I suppose and accept it is that like winning a gold medal is amazing it's been amazing for me but actually the pleasure I get now is when a little kid comes up or a granddad or somebody and says please can I have a photograph taken wearing your medal I'm like yeah of course you can so actually my medals, um, some of them on the wall in the dining room over there, my medals are for other people's pleasure now, realistically, because I, a bit like if you bought a new ornament for the room you're in now, it's quite novel for two weeks and you keep seeing it. You think, oh, I really like that ornament or that picture. But then after a while, you stop seeing it. And I don't see my medals. People walk in the house and they go, oh my God. I'm like, what the oh my god in at? There's a dog <laughs> crapped on the floor or something and they just stood in it. And they're like, oh, my God, you've got medals on the wall. I'm like, oh, yeah, you don't notice them. And I think my knighthood is more novel. It's taken me a lot used to get used to, but I don't care if you just call me Lee. I don't care. My mates laugh and giggle and elbow me and kind of in a shop if someone goes, oh, well, thank you, Mr. Pearson. And they'll go, you're not a mister. And I'm like, I'm, you, I'm not going to go along through life correcting people. Um, because that's just not me, but... But then people that know kind of get a weird pleasure about going, oh, my God, I'm going to talk to a knight or I can call somebody, sir. Well, just before finishing off, I wanted to talk about kind of um, what you're saying about people kind of going up to you and, you know, they're taking pictures because, you know, you, you run your own dressage yard. I mean, you're kind of inspiring that next generation. You are taking kind of what Sebastian Coe said from London 2012. And to be fair, he's been made a lord, so he's kind of on another level. Um, yeah. Don't make uh, me feel not worthy now, Tim. <laughs> Don't make me feel not worthy. <laughs> How dare I got not get the lordship? <laughs> well, you did say you're a commoner, so you know I'm gonna. So in, in that in that respect, but you know, how's that been? And actually, you know, inspiring kids to kind of get what to what you you know have done in your career. Yeah, I feel really proud of that. For as I say, for all the Paralympians, all the games that I've done, especially the London Games, they put Paralympic Paralympians and Paralympic sport on on the map. Um, I'm lucky that I am in a sport that doesn't have an age restriction, realistically. We have toddlers riding horses and you have the queen riding horses. So literally, and everything and everybody in between, perceived as an elite sport, but actually, everywhere you go, there's fields with horses, there's people riding horses down the roads, um, and all different sections of society from travellers to royal family. So I find it strange that we're perceived to be elitist, but I know that when we go in the arena and we're kind of in shogi we all we all look like we've come from the hunting fraternity um so um but within my sport as i said before it's changed beyond recognition it's changed because people now want to be uh, want to try and attend the paralympic games they want to be a power athlete and people perhaps with disabilities where they've had an injury and would be embarrassed to to pursue a, a, a disability sport in years gone by or now no that is an area of life that uh, that I could achieve and I could campaign and compete in so 
just to be part of that journey. And I think in some of the, the biggest changes from Sydney, which was a borrowed horse competition for us because riders didn't have their own horses um, and through the games that I've been up, up to um, Rio, it's just been, it's just been an amazing uh, journey really. And, and, and just, yeah, they're, they're proud and happy to have been part of it. And obviously with Tokyo coming up probably next year, another chance to kind of do what you do on Well, you say that now, but we, we have a lot of riders and the and the, we, we only have now four places. Uh I mean, in years gone by, we've had seven places at Paralympic Games. So obviously there's more chance of being selected. So I don't even know. The horse breeze that I've discussed is is a is a quality horse. He's got a great brain and a great movement. What the judges like, but it is so competitive now. Um, I mean, I went to Kiso International um, two weeks ago, um, and at Bedfordshire, and a British rider that I'd never competed against. With, with, um, I beat her. She was getting great scores on the first two days. And on the third day, I went wrong in my own freestyle to music. <laughs> How you can go wrong in your own freestyle, I have no idea. I missed a compulsory movement out and uh, she rightly beat me. But I think she would have beaten me even, even if I hadn't made a mistake. So there's riders coming through now that uh, are even better than me. But it's been nice to... It's good to have a competitive edge, though. It must drive you on to kind of do... To oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm going to do everything in my power to be in uh, Tokyo. And maybe if I don't get selected, I'll come and have a holiday and wave a flag. You know, <laughs> well, you'd be what I was when I was watching you in the crowd. So yeah, you know. there's a, another full circle. <laughs> um, I always finish these off with um, if you've got, if you sort of speak to a kid or somebody wanting to kind of be like you um, in terms of the sport or, you know, they've got a similar disability, what Ooh. would your message be to them about what, you know, what's life got for them? overall um well my my message my motto message isn't related to someone with a disability and i said to my foster kid the other day you're really passionate about football so let's just go um at it with both feet jumping in and just see where we where it can take you and 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 i've always said to people through being depressed in the office job to then um going on this journey called life is uh, you only live once and if you're not happy doing something then just change it just change it because you can't life goes by so quickly that that um, you should have no regrets and and people say when I when will I retire and I just say when I want to and that will be it um, I, there won't be no ifs and buts I'll just I will just retire because that's the decision that I want to do for my life and so if, you, if you've got the opportunity if you love something and you've got the opportunity to turn that into a career then just try your hardest to do that really maybe a tv broadcasting role in the future <laughs> i don't think i've got enough talk about me although you have kept me going for quite a while over, over an hour so pretty the longer that charming the... face that handsome face turned me just kept me intrigued that's exactly. what it was. <laughs> don't worry you know i always say it's the genes well um thank you <laughs> thank you so much anyway for coming on and uh, really really appreciate it thanks for listening to this episode of some essex lad and the paralympian Please leave us a rating, comment and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter it's at EssexLadPara and Instagram is at EssexLadParalympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in some EssexLad and the Paralympian. Farewell and we'll see you soon.